as now we look to our Lord together in prayer. And Father, even this morning, I'm praying for people that are critically involved in making decisions that affect others. For some, it's periodic. For others, it's daily. And they need that wisdom from above to be able to handle the issues below. They want your will, not theirs. And they need a framework to be able to make good decisions that honor and please you. And Father, what we're praying is that in all these services this morning and then again tonight, by your Spirit, we're being better equipped to do this. Now we know in any of these services, there will be those that come that are spiritually curious. They've got questions, questions about things that matter most. And I pray, Father, that you will, by that magnetic work of Jesus Christ and the cross, be drawing them to you via your word. We want this to be such a God-centered worship. We want to be such God-centered people of this congregation that we're always setting aside self-interest for the sake of God's will, which is our prayer again this morning. So, Father, in these minutes together, we are simply praying that once again that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, and that you would shape these wills. Come here again, Father, to see Jesus, him only. I'm praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Traveling towards Chicago, I found myself needing to pull off to the side of the road. It was an intense discussion, debate, if you will, unfolding on the radio, and I wanted to jot down some of the thoughts that were being shared and develop some conclusions for myself. The woman was rather passionate in the debate, stating that she is coming out of a mainline denomination and she obviously had strong political persuasions. She found herself wanting to be and positioned herself to be at the forefront of what today is now known as the social justice movement. Making her case was interesting how the one who was handling the situation responded to her. And so he posed two questions that seized my attention that I thought were adroit and needed to be applied to a whole host of situations across our nation. He first asked the question, and what is the standard of justice? Now she quickly jumped in saying, my standard of justice is, but before she could finish, he said, no, that's not the answer that I'm looking for. It's not the question I posed. The question is not, what is your standard of justice? The question is, what is the standard of justice? 
and it got silent. He was attacking moral relativism. But then the second question was posed. And who is the source of that standard? She quickly jumped in, talking about her political preferences and certain politicians. And furthermore, her own denomination would happen to be, happen to be unsurprisingly, mainline. And he said, no. I am asking ultimately who is the source of that standard. Which, of course, leads us towards the sovereign God who sent his son, who in the face of injustices died in our place for our sins. I must have spent 15 minutes writing before I got back on the highway and headed onward to Chicago. Because I think these are pivotal issues in the time period in which you and I are asking. Because the question is this. Is the social justice movement of today biblical justice? And is there a difference? And the believer, steeped in God's word, would say Yes. What I want to do with you now is we carry on this series and think God's thoughts via God's word is to draw out three significant recommendations that I believe are found here in these verses to equip the incoming generation of spiritual leaders as to how to better handle the challenges and the difficulties, whether it be locally or nationally or globally, that come our way. In the first flow out of verses 1 down through verse 5, and we're going to phrase it like this. That when an injustice arises, spiritual leaders should listen intently when learning of the injustice. You need to be able to show you care. And furthermore, you need to make certain that you are gleaning all the facts before you start to provide a sense of solution. Nehemiah is a brilliant listener. He doesn't simply reflexively react. But no, he is going to process the facts to develop conclusions to bring about resolution. Spiritual leaders need to take this to heart. Are you prone to be an individual who listens intently, or are you prone to just simply respond impulsively? Know yourself. In verse 1, Nehemiah informs us, and he must have been listening intently, because he says that there arose a great outcry of the people. Furthermore, he particularly states, and of their wives. There is something at the forefront of the family unit here that's at stake. But also note that he's able to say, and it's against their Jewish brothers. Now last week, what we noted very carefully was that Jerusalem was being surrounded north, south, east, west, 
external challenges that were threatening their well-being and the future advancement of the gospel. But you see, the evil one is not content with mere externals. He will also work with internals. The family unit nationwide is under a similar assault. Not only external challenges, but internal challenges as well. And the wise spiritual leader understands both and knows that we are at the forefront of spiritual warfare. There are three significant stakeholder groups here that Nehemiah is able to identify for you and for me. And the first group is identified in verse 2. Now there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. What's the issue here? Well, the issue is that there is a famine that has made its way across the region, and now the work stoppage is kicking in once again because people whose stomachs are growling have less capacity to do then the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, setting the stage by which Jesus Christ will eventually enter into that city. The wise spiritual leader understands the physical connotations involved when injustices are at stake. So he's looking carefully. And these people, parents, are stepping forward and they're saying, we've got to eat. And now he's pondering, because he has been cupbearer to the king, what influence he might have. And the wise spiritual leader is continuously asking the question, and what leader, what What principles and what influence do I have to make a difference in the crisis that I am facing right now? But we don't end there, do we? The wise spiritual leader understands stakeholder groups and looks for patterns by which they state their case. What are the similarities and what are the differences? And now a second group steps forward in verse 3. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Now, we have moved from the physical and connected now to the financial. They are mortgaging their properties because of high taxation that's been established within their kingdom. And once again, Now, Nehemiah is going to have to take note because he has been in the cabinet, a cabinet member of that king in the land of Persia, modern-day Iran. And still, that's not enough. Because in verse 3, a third group appears. Verses 4 and 5. There were those who said, we borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards, But notice there's something more at stake here in verse 5. And now our flesh is as flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. The slave movement. 
And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Now you see the threefold grievous situation that Nehemiah finds himself in. The natural tendency is to simply remove ourselves from the crises of life so as not to exhaust ourselves when it comes to dealing with these issues. But you see, God has positioned believers in this church, throughout this region, and on across this nation and beyond to make a difference. To make a difference. Where we are not people on the take. We are people who are known to give. I always love that story about Ernest Shackleton. His biographer tells us that he was asked to tell of his most terrible moment in the Arctic. And he said his worst was one night in an emergency hut. He and his fellows were lying there, and he, rather apart from the rest, they had given out the ration of the last biscuits. There was nothing more to divide. Every man thought the other was asleep. Shackleton sensed a stealthy movement and saw one of the men turning to see how the others were faring. He made up his mind that all were asleep and then stretched over the next man and took his biscuit bag and removed the biscuit. Shackleton, his biographer tells us, lived through an eternity of suspense. He would have trusted his life in the hands of that man. Was this man now turning out to be a a thief, a traitor under such trying circumstances, stealing a man's last biscuit? Then Shackleton sensed another movement. He saw the man open his own box, take the biscuit out of his own bag, and put it in his comrades, and return the man's biscuit, and stealthily put the bag back at the man's side. Shackleton said, quote, I dare not tell you that man's name. I felt that act was a holy secret between himself and our God. Unquote. Whether you're shepherding a home, responsible in the business, concerned with movements in this nation, There is a tremendous tension, you see. A tremendous tension between the give and the take of life. The king of Jerusalem, Herod, was in the business of taking life. The king of kings and lord of lords was in the business of giving his life.
the wise spiritual leader, and we are raising up the next generation. If you're a parent, if you're single, you're influencing people in the workplace, the universities, and so on. Equip them to be able to listen intently to the stakeholder cries in the culture in which we are in right now. And continuously remind yourself, I cannot necessarily buy in to the so-called social justice movement because I need to be able to evaluate it in accordance to what biblical justice entails and not assume they're synonymous. Now, what do you do about this? If verses 1 through 5 is the first recommendation, listen intently when learning of the injustice. Then verses 6 to 13 is the second recommendation that we respond biblically when confronting the injustice. But where do you begin? Notice in verse 6 that you and I are told here that Nehemiah, he's being very forthright with you and with me. And he says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry. And these words, the elders and I and deacons as well, we are working through chapter by chapter the book of Nehemiah, posing questions, how to raise the next generation of spiritual leaders. At the same time, hand in hand, we have J. Oswald Saunders' book, Spiritual Leadership, as a means to further our discussions. Saunders writes about the anger of the spiritual leader, noting that Jesus' love for the man with the withered hand aroused his anger against those who would have denied him healing in Mark 3, verse 5, and then goes on to say this. Great leaders who have turned the tide in days of national and spiritual declension have been men who could get angry at the injustices and abuses which dishonor God and enslave men. It was righteous anger against the heartless slave traders that caused Wilberforce to move heaven and earth for the emancipation of the slaves. John Huffman, writing of Wilberforce, the great British statesman of the late 18th and early 19th centuries said, quote, After youthful resistance to the gospel, Wilberforce finally committed his life to Christ. He concluded that God had not seen fit to save him only for the eternal rescue of his own soul, but also to bring about his light to the world around him. He gave his life to the abolition of the slave trade. He counted the cost of this Christ-given task, first presenting his case to Parliament in 1788. And year after year, he worked at this, only to be beaten down in defeat. Until finally, in 1807, this remarkable leader, the slave trade, was abolished. And then in 1833, the bill for the abolition of slavery passed the House of Commons. Get this. Forty-five years of dedicated hard work were climaxed by victory. A costly lifetime of effort 
instigated by the call of Jesus Christ. Rooted in this statement, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. So what does he do? I took counsel with myself. What is he counseling? Well, he has demonstrated, hasn't he, in the opening chapters, a tremendous capacity to relate truth to life. As should you, as should me, which is what spiritual leadership is all about. And there were three significant passages of Scripture in the Old Testament he could rely upon to guide his thoughts as he sought counsel from within. He's inwardly processing, how am I going to address this situation at hand? The first is found in Exodus chapter 22. 25 through 27 appears on the screen. God had said this with regard to the Israelites, dealing with the fact they had just been removed from captivity themselves at the hands of the Egyptians. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge... You shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. This Nehemiah is having to now address the fact that maybe, just maybe, his Jewish brothers and sisters have bought into an idea of social justice, which was incongruent with biblical justice. Leviticus chapter 25 kicks in. And in verse 35 down through verse 40, it would have direct implications for what he was facing. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he was a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or a prophet, but fear your God that your brother keeps coming across you. Your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the jubilee. And even that's got to be coupled, furthermore, with what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Because in verse 19, and again in verse 20, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Now you take those three passages that Nehemiah was inevitably pondering, reflecting upon, and you draw these conclusions. Two can-dos, two can't-dos. Can-dos. 
The Jewish brethren can lend money to a non-Jew for interest. The Jewish brother can lend money to a Jew. But did you catch the difference? Let me say it again. The Jewish brother can lend money to a non-Jew for interest. The Jewish brother can lend money to a Jew, period. What about a can't do? The Jewish brother can't demand interest on a loan to a Jew. And a Jewish brother cannot enslave a fellow Jew. Why is Nehemiah angry? Bottom line, they were disregarding, and furthermore, they were disobeying the word of God. Now, what the believing community needs to do in America today is step forward and say, I'm interested in biblical justice and not buy into what might, in fact, be a counterfeit social justice. And we draw our ethics from God's sovereign plan, not from sinful humanity's desires. This is why he says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry on these words, and I took counsel with myself. And so what does he do here? He brings three charges against those that have been working with him. Working with him, not against him. This is tough. This is hard. But the first charge, and a spiritual leader's got to understand, sometimes he's got to go against the grain. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials in verse 7. And I said to them, you are exacting interest from each from his brother. The very same phrase that was used in the three passages I just referenced. So now he's dealing with the relational dynamic. The fellowship of faith. So what does he do? He moves from the relational now and inches forward. This is a public issue, therefore it requires a public response. It's not a private issue requiring a private response. I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought, excuse me, bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you, even so your brothers, that they may be sold to us. He has just brought biblical ethics, biblical justice to the forefront. What's their reaction? They were silent and could not find a word to say. When Jesus was being challenged with regard to taxes and said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In Luke 20, in Luke 21. And in verse, excuse me, 20, and in verse 26, they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. And the Christian community in a sinful world has the opportunity to demonstrate biblical ethics and to silence the people that would challenge the advancement of God's 
pause. And now he's got their attention. This takes courage, doesn't it? Courage. Party aboard a ship was in full swing. Speeches were being made by the captain, the crew, and the guests. Enjoying a week-long voyage and sitting at the head of the table was this 70-year-old man, somewhat embarrassed, doing his best to accept the praise being poured on him. See, earlier that morning, a young woman had apparently fallen overboard, and within seconds, the elderly gentleman was in the cold, dark waters at her side. The woman was rescued. The elderly man was an instant hero. When time finally came, the brave passenger to speak, the stateroom became quiet. He went to the microphone, and what was probably the shortest hero's speech ever offered spoke these words. I just want to know one thing. Who pushed me? God has a way of pushing courage forward. And when we courageously confront the sin of the culture, when it's done biblically, it is done ethically. And as a result, there's a silence. They could not find a word to say. Now he's got their listening ear. He's talking to the religious community. So I said now in verse 9, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Now he's got an opportunity to bring God into the conversation, to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies. In other words, he's saying our witness is at stake. Verse 10. He moves here after this third charge, the first and seven, the second and eight, the third and nine, to now his plan to resolve this issue, the resolution. Resolution time. Verse 10, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, the percentage of money, grain, wine, oil that you've been exacting from them. Look at their reaction in verse 12. What can they say? Then they said, we will restore these things and require nothing from them. This is restitution, not retribution. We will do as you say. And I called the priests, made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment, said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise, so may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assemblies said, Amen. And when biblical ethics is pursued, worship is at hand. They praised the Lord there in verse 13. And the people did as they had promised. You respond biblically. So now, if you sense whether it be in the home or in corporate realm, the medical realm, the educational realm, whatever, that there are issues at hand, biblical ethics. What you don't want to do is to assume that social justice is biblical justice. You do it God's way, 
not necessarily the well-intentioned approach of humanity's way. And when you do so, notice the third recommendation. That coming out of verses 14 through 19, when an injustice arises, spiritual leaders should therefore thoroughly live honorably after resolving the injustice because your life is now under the microscope. It's the hypocrisy here. Does he or she say one thing and live a different way? Pick it up in 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers, keeps coming up, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers, ate the food allowance of the governor. In other words, he's got rights, and you have rights. Let me talk to the believers here. Sometimes we have to set aside our rights for the sake of responsibility. You might have the freedom to do something, biblically, but you set aside that freedom, that right, for the sake of responsibility of impacting others around you. So in verse 15, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver, and even their servants loaded over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Now, once you have firmly established that as your ethical principle, look at the powerful evangelistic testimony. In verse 16, I also persevered in the work of this wall. We acquired no land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. In other words, they get a chance to see that this man is the sort of man who should be a leader. It's one thing to lead from a distance. It's another thing to lead up close and personal. And now his integrity is being evaluated and they see that this is, this is not false advertisement. This is, this is authenticity. And so you drop down to the end, verse 19. And now the fourth prayer found in the book of Nehemiah stands out for you. Stands out for me. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So you're heading off somewhere, and you're listening to the radio, and you hear once again this powerful and passionate statement being made about the social justice movement. Pause. Reflect upon the fact there might be good intentions involved here. But ask the important question, but is the social justice movement, even if it's coming from certain denominations, though it tend to be mainline, biblical justice? And ask yourself, number one, what is the standard of justice? Ask yourself, number two, 
and who is the source of this standard and go to the cross of Jesus Christ. We're in the face of injustice. Jesus died for our sins so that we would not have to experience justice, but grace, free, rich grace because of Christ's finished work. Let's stand together. We pray that this distinguishes this and the next generation of spiritual leadership, that it shapes the way we approach the trends and the culture today and not assume a trend is a truth. Some here need to discipline the impulsive nature of the heart and pause to listen intently. Others of us are going to have to invest time in both Old and New Testaments to respond biblically. And as a result of this, Father, we need to live, we need to live honorably. When necessary, setting aside rights for the sake of responsibility to impact others, and to enhance the testimony of grace for your glory and good. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.